0: Okay, please turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, Luke, chapter 13, I'll be reading verses 1 through 5. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices, and he answered them. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. For those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Lord, grace me with the gift of a teacher. Help my lips unfold your words to the crowd that day. And cause Your Holy Spirit to be very present. That we would not shut down to Your words, but that we would hear them in their intention and in their saving purposes to the glory of Your name. Amen. You know, after having the privilege of preaching through Luke slowly, exegetically, working through the first 12 chapters and watching Jesus in His public ministry. If you were to ask me, Joe, what's the major impression you get from the ministry of Jesus in what you've seen? My answer would be something like this there are very few churches with pastoral search committees that would ever give this guy a job. Because we do. We, we want, as pastors, people to be very bold every week in telling us what we want to hear. And the reality is that what we have seen constantly with Jesus is that his preaching is often very unsatisfactory to the hearers and even irritating remember the passage just look up right before this Jesus said do not think I have come to bring peace I haven't I've come to bring tension division between peoples between families and then he turns and he says to the crowds his hearers You're hypocrites. Because you put more energy in wanting to know what the weather will be like tomorrow than you do towards spiritual things. Jesus just simply, constantly was uninterested in what people wanted to hear. He gave them what they needed to hear. And as we begin chapter 13, He becomes even more confrontive and shocking. And it's that kind of clarity that Jesus is all about that drives people away. Uh, All but the desperate. Who else has the words of life? So as we come to our text, if we were to update our passage into our present day, we would come to Jesus and say something like, Jesus, did you, did you see the TV in those pictures of the tsunami in Indonesia a few years ago where 200,000 people died? Or just a year and a half ago in Japan as I remember waking up and turning on the TV? Stunned? To watch that water destroy so many people's lives in towns. Jesus, did you hear about Hurricane Katrina or the tornado, tornadoes that swept through the South last year and destroyed a town in Alabama? Jesus, what, what do you make of this guy who shows up at the midnight premiere of the Batman movie? And indiscriminately starts shooting the movie watchers, killing at least 13, I don't know how many it is now, and maiming many others. His answer to us, according to this text, I don't think it's the only answer in the Bible, but his answer would be, don't you dare think that these people in those situations suffered horrifically that way because they were worse sinners than you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. I'm going to be two weeks in this text. I just want to say that up front because the main point of the text is repentance. And I'm only going to touch on it today, so I just, I'm going to have to come back next week. But those kind of questions, because there's a question in just saying, Jesus, do you know about? Did you hear? Did you see? There's a question, and that comes out clearly because of the way Jesus answers it. He knows what's going on in the heart. What's going on in... Our hearts, because these are natural questions for most all of us. Why? Why did that person have to die that way? It's one of the best people I know. I know a lot of horrible people, and their life just goes on seemingly smoothly. Why did these people? Perish in horrific people like Pol Pot, who is responsible for the murder of three million Cambodians, live decade after decade to old age. I remember when this happened. I remember where I was when I heard it. And died in his sleep. Welcome to the conversation that's been going on for thousands of years. It's called Theodicy. The problem with evil. Theodicy comes from two words. The Greek word for God, theos. The Greek word for just or justice. That's where we get the de diaco. Theodicy, theodicy is to justify God. There's a problem here: is If there is a, one true, good, loving And all-powerful God, how in the world could there be such horrific things like towers falling and killing 18 people? Or Pilate slaughtering a bunch of Jews from Galilee? Or tsunamis wiping out almost a quarter of a million human beings in a day? How could an all-good and all-powerful God really exist if there is such horrific happenings to innocent people? And so, in our text, as we come to Jesus with such deep philosophical and theological questions, He looks us in the eye and He says... The most urgent need in all of these contexts, when you turn on the news, the most urgent need is your own soul. If you are not right with God, you too are going to perish. So let's turn there, Luke 13, and look at the passage. There's two incidents that, that seem to be very fresh in the Jewish people of the first century. One incident, we don't know, we're just trying to piece together what happened. It's probably fairly recent. There were people, Jews, from the region of Galilee, where Jesus is from, where most of his... Disciples are from the Galileans, and this is probably an incident that was in Jerusalem in the temple because of the sacrifices during Passover. The only time where lay people could could, could make and kill the the animal during Passover. And probably Pilate thinks this is a group that's planning some type of insurrection, throw off, I don't know. And so he sends in guards and... It gets ugly, violence ensues, and evidently, I don't know how many, a number of these Jews from Galilee were slaughtered with a sword along with their sacrificial animals. And it's fresh in their mind. They're just struck by it. And then there's the other one, of this tower that fell. There's an accident. or We don't know what really happened, but 18 people were killed. This is probably a tower in the, in the, the southeast corner where the walls of Jerusalem meet, where there was an aqueduct, we do know that, that was being built to feed water into Jerusalem from the reservoir, Siloam, and probably during construction or something, accident happened, 18 people are killed. So, pick up in verse 1, these are refreshing the mind, and we read, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Okay, now, behind the question seems to be what many first century Jews thought. Wow! You what a horrific way to die. They must have been guilty of some horrendous sins. I mean, we're alive. We weren't killed. Those eighteen were, or or, or these Galilean Jews were. Whew. We've been living right. We've been eating right. That's their theology. All those Japanese on the coast, wiped out. We're on a coast in L.A. They must have been much more sinful than we who live in Los Angeles. This is their theology. This is the theology of Job's comforters. Job, you're just just wrong, Job. You've had some horrendous things just happen to you. You, therefore, must have grievously sinned against God. That's why they've happened. And we know God corrects. That's not the reason. Or you just turn to John 9 in the New Testament. This guy's born blind. That's horrific. That That's horrible. Okay, Jesus, you've got two choices. Was it because of his sin or his parents? It's got to be one or the other. I mean, we're not blind. <laughs> we haven't, therefore, sinned. As much as I think that question is lurking in the back of many of our minds. And here's Jesus' answer to it, right there in verse two. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? Because they suffered in this way? His answer? No. I tell you. And he just kind of throws this curveball in there. (laughs) He says he's saying, No. The answer to the question is no. That's not what you're to learn from the slaughter of these Galileans. But here's what you are to learn. Unless you repent. Repent you will all likewise perish. And he goes on. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Who were still walking around alive? Answer, no, I tell you. Lesson? But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Okay, let's, let's just examine His words. What in the world does this mean? First of all, Jesus clearly says that the reason these people who woke up a day, thought they were going to go home and have dinner, never came home, and they were crushed by a falling tower or were slaughtered, when they're so happily going to give their sacrifices. He says, the reason that happened to these individuals was not because they were more guilty than you are. That's what He says. The answer to your question, Jesus says, is no. Don't ever think, wow, I survived. I'm alive. <laughs> Not nearly sinful or as bad, therefore, is someone else who perished in a horrific way. But instead, he turns this whole question that's lurking behind their minds and points it to what is of utmost importance. Verse 3, No, I tell you, but unless you all repent, you will all likewise, same way, perish. And then he repeats it again in verse 5. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. See, Jesus says to them, these people who perished and died this way, their sin was not extraordinarily sinful. It was ordinarily sinful. Just like yours. And ours today. And if you don't repent, then the consequences are you will likewise meet a horrific End. this is why he only preaches in the church once and they never call him back pastoral <laughs> committee X's him out nope. Jesus looks at them and instead of saying yeah you guys have been really good man you're still breathing things are going good you still get to hug your children you're living right that's not the message he gives to them but he says don't miss The lesson. You all are just as guilty. Just as sinful as the 18 and the Galileans. And therefore, you all should get ready to die. Like they did. If you don't repent. Jesus here is not teaching. Oh, God has absolutely nothing to do with the tower falling or with Pilate or such calamities, hurricanes, and earthquakes. But He teaches here that we all are so sinful we should never be shocked at such destruction. As though, can't believe it. How could innocent people die that way? There are no innocent people. There's zero. The only innocent human being who has ever lived is the one speaking. The only human being who never deserved to be swept away in a tsunami, or with a heart attack, or with cancer, or with nails, was Jesus of Nazareth. What He is saying is that what should amaze us sinners is not that 300 people just perished in Peru in in an earthquake. But what should amaze us is, I can't believe that I didn't perish. Why am I alive? Jesus says the most stunning thing in the world is not that sinful human beings die in horrific ways. The most stunning thing is that we're not already all dead, but that God in His mercy gives us life to have another day to come to repentance. And be saved from perishing. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What does that mean? Is Jesus saying that every unrepentant person will be murdered like these Galileans? Is that what he's saying? You're going to likewise, in the same way, you're going to die like they did? Or you're going to die with a horrible accident, a piano dropping on your head? Is that his point? He says, unless you repent, you will all, like them, perish well the answer to that is just from the text clearly no can't mean that in verse 3 he says you will all likewise perish referring to dying by the sword of Pilate's guys. and then in verse 5 he repeats it you will all likewise perish referring to an accident you can't die both ways so, so he can't mean you will die the same mode of physical death. He can't, it just can't mean that. It would make no sense. And forget about motor death, just in general. When he says, if you don't repent, you will all likewise perish. He cannot mean physical death. And that's it. Can't mean it. Because physical death is coming to everybody. To those who come to faith in Christ and are saved, evidenced by their repentance, they're going to die. And to those who never come to faith and repentance in Christ, they are going to die. Everybody is going to die except for that last generation when Jesus comes back. So He can't mean, hey, if you do repent, whew, you'll never physically die. You see that? Okay. So what in the world does He mean when He says the unrepentant person will likewise perish. I, I just, I think he means something like, do you, "Do you see the horrific way these people died in these two situations? The implication: none of them woke up that day thinking this is the day I'm going to die. It caught them by surprise. N- not that there's death; they all knew that they're going to die one day, but the way they died." unaware how and when it was going to happen, was shocking. And it was a surprise. And so Jesus says, unless you repent, your end will be far worse than you ever imagined. I think He means something like that. It will be utterly shocking. In that sense, you will all likewise perish. Jesus' point is that just like these dreadful deaths in these two situations, there will be something dreadful about the way your life ends if you don't repent. Only repentance can make a person ready to meet God. That's what I think it means. Now, let's concentrate on the word he uses perish you will all likewise perish what does he mean it's the greek word apalesthe now that word apalesthe or perish can mean physical death but it cannot mean that in this passage it would make no sense because in the context jesus implies that if We do repent. We will not perish. Cannot mean physical death. He's not saying if you repent, you won't physically die. So to perish means something more than physical death. And the only thing I think he can mean by perish here is what will happen for those who have not repented on Judgment Day. And in the context, he clearly connects this perishing with what? Sin. Unless you repent. Repent from sin, you will all likewise perish. You do not avoid death by repentance. But you do avoid something far worse than death. Something beyond death called perishing. That's what Jesus says. And that's what you don't want to happen to you. Those Galileans who died in the temple, the 18 in Jerusalem were surprised with their horrible end. And if you don't repent, you will meet with a terrible end, the judgment of God will then completely fall upon you. This this word perish, I just want to give a taste of it in the the New Testament to to see this. In John 3.16, same word is used when we read, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, so that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. See that? So perish here is the opposite of having eternal life. In John 10.28, Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Perishing there is what happens to a person who has not been given eternal life. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1 1.18 for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Say more. But to us who are being saved, that word of the cross is the power of God. So there, the word perishing is the opposite of being saved by the cross. In 1 Corinthians 15 18, Paul writes. And then those also who have fallen asleep, well, that means physically died, right? Then those also who have died, and some of them may have had towers fall on them, or been having a sword thrust through them, or their head cut off, like will happen to Paul. And those who have already died, who are in Christ, who believe in Christ, who, who are Christians, those who have already died and fallen asleep, they have perished. That means, oh, no, no, no. If there's no resurrection, they've perished. The implications, they've died, but they have not perished. Jesus' message is, unless you repent, you will all likewise, not just physically die, but perish. By which he means what he says in Matthew 25. 46, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. All right, so the big picture, what what do we make of all that's going on here, man? Brutal, horrific deaths. Jesus just so easily turns it to all of us with a warning. It's connected to those things. You should think about those things. Yeah, ponder towers falling and people being wiped out and tsunamis and car accidents and cancer. and ponder them. And, and he says, "What you're pondering is your own life, and have you repented." Let me just draw a larger biblical picture of how I see the text. The Bible is really clear that there's a creator. And this creator, God, is the giver of all life. Genesis 1. Or the way Paul says it in Acts 17 verse 25. Nor is He, God, served by human hands as though He needed anything. He needs nothing from you. Since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So, our lives, just as much as those who were standing in front of Jesus that day, all of our lives are on loan from God and He has never relinquished the rights over them. Ever. We just saw that. Look back at chapter 12, verse 20. In the context earlier, remember the parable? In verse 20, But God said to him, Fool. This night your soul is required of you. God will bring your death about this night. You don't know it. Our life from God is never autonomously. separated from God's total ownership and right to do with what He pleases. He gives us our life for the purpose to glorify Him by enjoying Him, trusting Him. That's the garden. He makes human beings in His own image to reflect His glory in creation like no other. And the implication is there's one way to do it. Believe me. Trust me. Rest me. I will be all you need. And then sin. Which at the core of the sin in Adam and Eve, God said, don't do this. And we say, we don't believe you. Think you're tricking us. That was the lie of Satan. No, God's really holding back good stuff from you. And sin entered. And as God promised, with our rebellion as human beings against Him, God would judge. And the judgment will be death. For the day that you sin, you shall surely die. And in Adam we have all sinned, and in our lives we have all sinned, as Romans 3.23 says, we have all sinned and have utterly failed to glorify God. And that's why there are towers that do fall. That's why there are brutal dictators who murder. That's why there are car accidents and that's why there's cancer. It is the judgment of God for sin. You see, this brings to the next point. God is not only the giver of life. God is the one who... Who takes life. Job chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. After the death, the loss, very much like a tower falling, winds blowing, of his children, Job says, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave my children and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then the next verse. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. It just clearly says that Job's understanding there was not wrong. In the Song of Moses, in Deuteronomy 32, verse 39, God says. See now that I, even I, am He, and there is no God beside me. I kill, and I make alive. I wound, and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hands. So, God needs no one's permission to take a life. It's His to give, and it's His to take. And when God takes lives, He does it in such a way where He in no way ever does a wrong to those people. Where He never does an injustice. And God, in taking life as the sovereign creator of the universe, He in no way commits sin Himself or evil. When the sovereign one of the universe, after having shed His blood and died a horrific death in genuine true humanity, was raised from the dead, and in His resurrected glorified body sat with Peter. That sovereign one did not give up control of everything. But he says, there's going to be a day down the road where this is what's going to happen to you, Peter. You are going to be taken away against your will and you're going to die a horrible physical death to glorify my name. And in God's mysterious providence, control, and sovereignty over all things, he did Peter no wrong. If God wills to kill every human being on planet earth, with water, except for eight of them, He did no injustice. If God wills to destroy two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, He has wronged no human being. If God chooses to bring judgment upon His people, and have the city of Jerusalem and the temple destroyed by the hands of a wicked king, Nebuchadnezzar, God in no way has sinned against His people. Now, what about the devil? Doesn't he wreak havoc and death? Isn't Judas in some way responsible for the horrific evil against Jesus from Nazareth? And isn't it Jesus Himself that somehow Satan, or I can't, or is it Jesus or the coming has entered Him and has an influence on that? And the answer to all that is yes, yes. And as the Book of Hebrews says, there is a way or some way in which Satan or the devil has the power of death. But as we see in Job, where it made it clear, where Satan comes before God, it was God who gave over to Satan the lives of Job's kids. And we we get to see behind the scene in this great poem. Okay, look at Satan. Look what he's doing. And then Job says, God, Is taken away. Blessed his holy name. And he's not wrong in saying that. Okay. Just hold that there. This is this is this is reality. This, This is the truth about God. And now he sends his son. That is, God Himself, the second person, becomes a human being. And He stands in our text today and says, those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless... You repent, you will all likewise perish. We get things so backwards; it's mind-boggling. We think, "How horrific!" Many of us Christians think, if we take these words, "How no, that, you can't really mean that." <laughs> And we don't hear what is just so clear in Jesus' mind. You should just be amazed that any of us are alive. And we turned it around. It's horrible that any of us die. It is amazing at God's merciful patience. Peter talks about it. Oh, he's patient. One day is a thousand years, a thousand is one day. Because there will be in God's glorious merciful love more people come to repentance and be saved by holding off final judgment we miss the mercy of God when Jesus is saying yeah death has entered the world it's right there at the beginning of the Bible and their are windows of grace when you look at other deaths and turn on the TV Am I right with God? Is there a way to be saved? There is. That's God's mercy. God's purpose, Jesus is saying, in suddenly having a tower fall on people, is that you would wake up before a tower falls on you. That you would come to repentance. Repentance. The purpose in these happenings all around us today in our lives is not to say, serves them right. There must be really bad people and I'm not so bad. Wrong message, deceptive message, not true at all. The no worse sinners of work. That's just the taste of the judgment that is coming forever upon you who are perishing. If you don't, repent. His purpose and His sovereignty when you see waves of water wipe out cities and cars are floating. Is that you would be warned if you have not come to Christ, you come. And that every one of us who are Christians, are you living? A repentant life. Our lives are in his hands. Jesus says, You who have survived these catastrophes got another day to repent. You're supposed to use those as the opportunity to again and again to wake up, to repent, to cling to Christ, to turn again, to love and understand the Gospel, to pursue holiness. And so as we ponder the Galileans being slaughtered and these 18 people being crushed, or the guy at the Batman movie we are meant to heed. Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 30 to 32. Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, every one according to his ways, declares the Lord. Repent. And turn from your transgressions lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. God is infinitely complex in his makeup. He's saying, I would prefer not to bring judgment and kill you right now. I have no pleasure in it. Repent. I have no pleasure in the death of anyone. Well, then why would you ever judge? (laughs) He's much more complex than we can imagine. We are meant to hear the warning and we're meant to hear God's heart. I have no pleasure. Okay, There's no pleasure in and of itself for the suffering of anyone. And He means it. When God, the Son, to prove that He means this, becomes a human being in order to experience and suffer more than we could imagine, when Jesus, in Luke 19, will arrive at Jerusalem we read this from the second person of the Holy Trinity in His humanity. Starting with verse 41. And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, He cried. Okay. He means it. He wept over it. Saying, I would that you, my people, Jerusalem, even you had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you, Jerusalem, when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation, and repent. He's foretelling... Jesus is prophesying what will happen and did happen 40 years later. But it didn't prevent him from weeping. It didn't prevent him from those who are hard-heartedly choosing to perish. He weeps over Jerusalem. He feels the tragedy of humanity. The heart of God is hugely complex. Do not, when we want to read text clearly, when you read Job 1, God, are you soft? That's soft? Yes. When we read Jesus' words this morning, Do not attribute to God the inability to have deep compassion and love for sinners. He went to the cross. He can weep that He Himself is bringing judgment upon them. And because of that, because of the fact that God can be grieved over the pain and the suffering of people, while at the same time ordaining that very suffering for higher and God-glorifying and more joy-extension reasons than we can imagine, it means that as we human beings, See the pain and the sufferings of others and understand the sovereignty of God. You, we are never to rejoice in their pain, you are never to misinterpret the horrific deaths of others. Well, God's sovereign. He did it. Ha, ha, ha. We are to cry and to weep like Jesus. We are to do what the Apostle Paul said to do. To weep with those who weep and to help. And at the same time that we are doing that, we are not to forget that those horrific experiences in this blood-curdling world are constant smelling salt to our noses, to wake up, Joe, wake up, pursue holiness, walk with Him. And at the same time with that, as believers, to never forget, we're walking through a world where people may live to old age and die in their sleep. And they're perishing and facing a more horrific death. Death than being slowly sliced in pieces. It's coming. And therefore, all the more we should say, God, use us, our voice, to snatch people from the judgment that is to come if they don't repent from their hard-heartedness toward this message, the Gospel of Jesus, who bore the guilt, the final, eternal, perishing judgment for our sin, paid for, done for all who would believe in Him. Let's pray. Father, would You cause us, your people who have come to you to treasure, to be more deliberate and intense in pursuing holiness and repentance, would you cause us daily to see more clearly how glorious this salvation In your Son is. Would you cause ears that have not been savingly awakened to heed, to heed the warning, and to see the treasure that is Christ, the only name under heaven by which we must be saved? And would you make us more. Bold in our daily lives with opportunities of telling the gospel and pleading for those to come to the banquet table. Amen.